Using the Civil War as a backdrop, Sofia Coppola with the Beguiled continued her evolution in style with this remake of Don Seagal's original 1971 film, only this time shooting from the women's perspective rather than the man's. As the arrival here, signified by Colin Fowle's Soldier of Fortune at the girls' school, begins to stir feelings in both students and Nicole Kimmon's teacher alike. The film was viewed by Coppola as a way to cleanse herself after 2013's The Bling Ring from what she terms as such a tacky and ugly world. But at the same time, would this be a step too far for Coppola, taking such a popular property and then subverting the viewpoint? I'm Elwood. I'm Kim. And you're listening to Movies and Tea. Let's take it to the booth. to the end of season three the end of our re-evaluation of the uh, Sofia Coppola filmography and it's certainly been a season that's really felt like it's fl- flown by I don't know about yourself Kim yeah it definitely feels like it flo- flew by especially because well it could also have to be to have to do with the fact that you know uh Sofia Coppola has less films to look at so it was one of our lighter months and we didn't even have to double down on anything so no, and when we look at other seasons that we got planned ahead, there's going to be some pretty heavy opening months, should we say, where we try to try to work in as many films the filmography as possible. Um, but certainly with uh, the Sophia filmography, I mean, it's been such a an interesting sort of journey. Just this, while many people sort of view her films as being all very much the same, I think there's certainly as we've gone really from the version of Suicides to now Engine on the Beguiled, there's really been sort of movement changes in sort of in the style that we've seen from her. We've obviously seen her do the sort of social satire with those mumblecore undertones with the likes of uh, Somewhere and Lost in Translation. We've seen her do adaptations obviously with this film and uh, the Virgin Suicides and we've seen of them do like more modern and sort of contemporary films with uh, the likes of the Bling Ring which obviously marked her only venture into working with digital and now with the Beguiled it seems to be returning to shooting on film and really taking on a film that she originally had no interest in in doing but it was really the urging of the production designer Anne Rose that sort of made made her reevaluate her sort of stance on the film and looking at ways that she could possibly update it and certainly when as we when we get into the film we can obviously see that she certainly has brought a new spin to to a film to a film which i don't know whether it's a sort of a well-known film or or not i suppose it depends on how much of a clint eastwood fan you are but certainly the 1971 version was something i wasn't familiar with prior to uh doing the research for this episode so yeah but did you have any sort of connection at all no i've never i didn't even know like until you said before that it was from like the previous one was from a man's perspective i had i have no idea i just went into this one like just like that i didn't really do a ton of research either so okay yeah so you know i'm gonna apologize right now i sound really nasally so (laughs) it's gonna be (laughs) (laughs) The film itself was uh, also based on the book A Painted Devil by Thomas P. Collingham. Coppola actually said that she used the book mainly as a framework rather than a straight adaptation, like when she did The Virgin Suicides, which was more of a straight adaptation. Um, feeling there was many issues with the book and the fact that it was also very, felt very dated. Now, certainly with 
with the film unsurprisingly she's chosen to go with shooting from a woman's perspective and certainly this is something that we've talked about on previous episodes like with the version suicides and marie antoinette um and even to an extent lost in translation the fact that sophia likes to shoot from shoots from the female feminine perspective and certainly seeing women showing women sort of on that cusp of uh burgeoning into womanhood which suddenly becomes a real key theme here as the film itself is set obviously during the civil war about five years into the civil war when the film set and the school itself that this old girl school which the film is uh is uh set in has pretty much been abandoned all the help and most of the teachers have gone all that sort of remains is the one teacher here played by uh, Nicole Kidman and there's about five students that are left and she's basically trying to run the school as best she can and it's really when one of the uh, pupils Amy comes across uh, John McBurney here played by Corin Farrell who's a social fortune who's escaped from the battlefield and has ended up on the school grounds with a wounded leg and he gets brought into the school and it's really just this presence of a man in an all-female environment that starts to stir sort of feelings amongst the both the the girls and uh the older ladies of the of the property and it's that this is where the film sort of follows it just follows um the sort of changes as McBurney obviously starts to get starts to recover from his uh, leg injury and so the effect that his presence starts to have on the the school so how did just from terms of story I mean how did you find the story because I mean this is obviously a more straightforward uh, story there's nothing overly sort of complex in the actual plotting here it certainly didn't feel like at least no I don't really think there was anything too complex here I think the only thing was you know you wonder if the things they did in the process of while what he was there, you know, obviously leading up to the final act, whether it was something that, you know, as he suspected that it was out of, you know, jealousy or whether it wasn't. I think that was the only thing at the end. Right. But in the beginning, it was really just, you know, you kind of see where everyone stands, um, like the girls, um, where how they feel about this person, this man being in their residence. And um, in this world, kind of like where, you know, they do have a lot of soldiers and such that wander by, kind of, but they, they, they wander by and they're like, you know, they kind of have a bit of exchange to see like what's going on outside and whatnot. But, you know, there there's a lot of things that I think that, you know, the girls have a sort of depth to them. And in some ways, the school kind of, for us at least, it feels like it circles back a little to virgin suicides. Um, because it feels a bit like the balance of the characters feel a bit like, you know, virgin suicides with, you know, the age differences and the different things they see yeah. and like, you know, just a man. Like there's, you know, the girl who finds, um, who finds McBurney is more of like, you know, viewing it as a friend more than trying to, you know, get his attention. Just like, you know, whereas, you know, you have Elle Fanning's character, who is more of a flirty character in this one, where she really wants to get his attention. She really wants to, like, seduce him. Definitely so. And when we're obviously first introduced to the sort of structure, you've obviously got Miss Martha played by Nicole Kimmons character, and she's sort of at the top, and she keeps everyone in line. Yeah, she she's, keeps everyone she's on She's like on the task. headmistress, you know. That's right, and she comes off initially as this very sort of stern character, and certainly as the situation develops, you feel that uh, she's more the way that she is because she has to ret ret retain control, and she keep keeps the girls very sort of separated from the outside world. She doesn't really allow them to have contact, as you said, with the wandering Confederate soldiers who go past the ground, and we constantly hear the the war that's raging on the background as we see like plumes of smoke and we hear the cannon fire and mm -hmm. so the war's constantly on the doorstep there but at the same time these girls are living off in a very sort of enclosed world and like you say it's like the virgin suicides where you've got the girls who are sort of trapped in the family home and they don't have that sort of exposure to to men or boys or so the the outside world it's the only world that they know is the world within within the grounds and certainly with some, some of the characters, you can see that perhaps it's kept them in a more childlike, innocent sort of state. Um, as we see them sort of like playing games while they're doing chores and things. And you would 
many of these girls are sort of like older than you would expect to be doing uh to have like that sort of still sort of that childlike innocence to them although i have to say that when it comes to l l ellie Fanning's character who's supposed to be 18 i felt she was a lot younger which made certain scenes later in the film a lot more awkward <laughs> i wasn't sure how, what age she was supposed to be in the film itself but i mean like you know back in what it was like the 18 um it was set in uh 1864 so, I mean, back then, it was like, you know, girls would get married, would be married off earlier as well, right? So it's not really like, you know, it's not really like a huge shocking deal, whether if, if you know, sometimes you watch these films and they're like, they're married off at, what, 15 or something. So to me, even if she was 15 in, in the movie, like she was playing someone who was 15, it wouldn't feel too awkward, I guess. Like, I kind of just took it as... Um, it reminded me a bit of like um, Pride and Prejudice, also because mm. of all the all the girls and how they would interact with them. And she was just more of the type, which she, you know, she was really wanting to get. Like she really likes attention. I think that's what her character is, and and I think that that's what makes this film fun and you know interesting. Not well, fun, but interesting to watch is more like. Every single character has some kind of tension point and some kind of, you know, uh, the way, like different levels of how they control their feelings and how they view is the proper way to be a woman. So obviously, you know, you have Miss Martha who, who obviously has a lot more control of her herself, but in certain moments by herself, you also see that, you know, she's very much affected by um, this man coming into their boundaries and that you know in one scene where she's treating her his wound and she just you know and he's like out he's like unconscious sort of thing and then she goes and she has to like wash her face and you know we see that camera just panning up and down like his body as he like as she likes cleaning him and stuff and you know that that scene is like it's more like from her point of view like she's watching this man and she's you know, obviously, Miss Martha is, is older also. We soon after we learn a little bit more that, you know, she's had some kind of relationship before. So she's not as innocent as everybody else that's at this, you know, school. So, you know, obviously, she's a bit more, you know, turned on, but she's trying to control herself also from from the situation. But, you know, on the other hand, you have Kirsten Dunst, who plays Edwina, um, which I guess is a teacher. And she... And she's like, she she also, you know, is controlled by Miss Martha. But at the same time, she has, you know, she definitely is older in the crowd. And she has a lot more like, you know, in her mind, she she's, comes from a different background. And, you know, they always bring that up about how she comes from a different type of family. And, you know, uh, maybe more like a city girl or something. And, you know, that sort of stuff. And... And it, it puts her into a different place when she's trying to also, you know, close, you know, you feel like she's more, she she controls herself even more than Miss Martha does. I really love the way that the film film shoots the interactions with, uh, with the girls and yeah. Colin Fowle's character. It really brings into mind, I mean, this is something that was highlighted to me, the fact that we're obviously used to the male gaze, here Coppola is using the female gaze. Because she's objectifying Colin Fowles' character. The girls are never objectified in any way. They're very sort of buttoned down and mm -hmm. they could not have more layers on. But Colin Fowles there, you know, with his shirt just open slightly, we get a hint of leg and it's sort of like... It, it's like she's shooting this the same way that a male director might shoot an attractive young woman. And I thought that was just absolutely fascinating to watch. That you're watching just Colin Fowles just being used as an object of sexual uh, a, a, a desire mm -hmm. and I think it's just perfect to cast if, you, if you're going to cast someone in that sort of role the same way that obviously with the original version you would use Clint Eastwood back when he was sort of like rugged and uh, had that rugged sort of charm to him and Colin Fowles sort of like the very good modern day equivalent of that role and I love the fact that he's got that sort of rough edge to him and you the fact that he's a soldier of fortune so he's basically fighting for whichever side can afford his services really removes any sort of ideology for his sort of character so we're not sure whether we're supposed to 
side with him or not. It, that whole argument has been removed, so it doesn't matter if he's part of the North or the South. Mm-hmm. He's just just this uh, soldier who's wounded, and he's at the uh, the mercy of these these women who uh, are there just to sort of look after him because he spends a good three quarters of the film just locked in a room. Yeah, he has no way of getting about in. Certainly, once he uh, once he recovers and suffers uh, an accident, should we say, mm-hmm. which we'll go into a bit later, um, which causes him to uh, lose the leg, he's further at the the mercy of these these women, um, as he's left to sort of hobble around on on crutches. And I thought it was just such an interesting way to to view things. It brought to mind like films such like Black Narcissus and. I just, as I said, it was just such a an interesting way to 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 put the story. I mean, obviously, it's easy enough to put the film in in the female perspective as she's obviously set to do, but to then start making these sort of changes in how we're shooting certain characters, it was just really quite fascinating to watch. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like you know, and 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 it's really great because there there are some you know I want to go a little bit more into like how Coppola chooses to shoot this also there are a lot of scenes where we go like where they they go into you know that room where um where the corporal is and and it's just it's just like every all the action revolves around that room and a lot of times she uses those still shots where it's just on colin farrell but we we hear the door open and close and then we never know who it is until that person comes in and I really like the idea of that doing that because every single person who comes in has something different that they're looking for. There's some kind of attraction or there's some kind of, you know, uh, friendship or there's some kind yeah. of, you know, resistance and, and or, you know, obviously there's there's seduction as well. And there and every single time, you know, these little moments is that we why the camera kind of hides a bit of those things. And I and that's what I've always loved about, I think, this whole journey of reevaluating Coppola's work is that we see like that really really charmful way that she's able to you know control the camera and be able to just capture a moment but keep a part of it still behind like behind the scenes and and you know and and that goes for you know even the opening scene of this film which is done so well because it kind of like you know you start the scene and you're panning up from like if you're panning down from the trees as you hear a girl like just care uh, just carelessly just kind of like um, humming in the background and then you kind of see her walking down the road but as we pan down we hear all these gunfire and cannons going off and it really like kind of like just sets that situation of where of what's happening right now really well and and you know that that's that's something that i really appreciate from what she does definitely so and like you said the the film it's not using any sort of like sort of fancy sort of camera work here it's very much keeping the camera often fixed especially with when we are in mac, mac burnley's room he's always kept us at the center of of focus and the other characters who sort of come in and out of, out of frame as depending on what they're obviously doing and it's certainly always the camera's always playing the standoff it's never trying to try and invoke any sort of emotion in the character it just lets the characters do do the talking and and you know we put across their own sort of intentions and i i love the fact that the the rise in tension within the household is so subtle the fact that one or two of the girls that start like putting on jewelry or they start bringing him gifts and things and yes you only sort of like get it brought to your attention in the scene where we've got uh kirsten dunce's character she gets in a, a disagreement with one of the other characters of it because uh they've decided to steal her earrings mm-hmm. to impress the uh to impress the the corporal and at the same time she retorts that oh you're wearing that pin that you haven't worn since last christmas and highlighting the fact that you know she's also making this these subtle efforts as well because while neither of them are making like these big sort of gestures they're all making these like subtle um these these subtle uh, changes to the to themselves and the way that they act and as you said already it's not all romantically uh inclined there's certain there's a couple of girls who just want like friendship such as uh the girl who's got the henry the turtle 
mm-hmm. who until uh, McBurney's arrival was the only man in the household. Something I didn't like, though, uh, in terms of cinematography, is the fact that everything seemed to be lit by candle. Yeah, it was, There's... you know, it was mostly, it was lit by candle. Some scenes worked better than others. Yeah. And then there was also um, that really artistic kind of, like, sunlight through the trees, which happened a lot whenever we got, like, the far away view or, like, oh, the s- shooting to the next day, we would have that. I don't really mind those. I'm more of, like, a... I don't know. That's how I take pictures, so I don't really mind. <laughs> I, I find like a, it's kind of like a artsy way of doing uh, of doing shots, but sometimes it's like it makes it really hard to be able to um, see what's going on, um, depending on you know what you're watching on as well. Yeah, I mean, it was only mainly during the sort of a couple of the evening shots where it was it was as you say, it's difficult to figure out what I'm supposed to be watching. Certainly the t- scenes around the dinner table it works really well and certainly the way that the characters' faces are illuminated looks absolutely stunning. Um certainly Nicole Kimmon who is just such a, a presence here in the film and I was never sh- never sure which side she's on, whether she's obviously got harvesting her own sort of attraction there or she's sort of playing a more sort of stern and sort of strict role and just determined to get this sort of stranger out of the well, house as soon as possible well, she, she obviously has an attraction because there was a moment that she you know she wanted to kiss him and then she got interrupted so you know there there is a an attraction that she wants from from this person you know and and i think that you know um one of the main things i think in 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 this sort of angle of looking at things is whether like who who is at fault in all this, right? When he loses his leg, right after that accident happens, is it by his own doing, or is it really that you know, you know what leads to all this? Is it because he's like you know he's kind of like toying with them, um, you know he's toying with a few of the women, and then and then he goes back and he's like. You know, obviously we're kind of entering a spoiler alert here, you know. He goes through that and he, after he loses his leg, he's like, oh, this is all your scheme to keep me here and all that stuff. And, you know, it's because I wouldn't go in whoever's room and whatever. And, and you're just like, and you're just like, well, you are kind of a dirtbag. <laughs> so I don't know if I want to side with you right now, you know. Like, you see him and it's like at the beginning you feel like, oh, well, you know, he seems like he's resisting everybody else and he really has his eye on Edwina and he's like really charming her and seems like such an, you know, just a really great guy. And then like, you know, suddenly the movie just flips around after he feels better, right? And then he gets invited to dinner and he feels a sudden desire that, you know, to accept the affections of, of, uh, of, of Alicia and then you have... And then you have, you know, Miss Martha trying to kiss him. And then and then you have, like, you know, Edwina, obviously, he seems to be hinting that he's going to go to her room sort of thing. But, you know, it's it's kind of like, you know, it all hangs in that balance. But you never know what his decision is. And then when he makes a decision, obviously, obviously, it causes, you know, him to the end game of him of losing his losing his leg. It certainly provides a breaking point when he makes his his choice for which of the girls that he's he's actually going to engage in a romantic liaison with. Um, up until that point, though, it seems that you know there may be a, be a purpose for him because he's very on the surface. Yes, I mean he's obviously this handsome corporal, but at the same time, there's so many other complex elements to his character. Yeah. I mean the fact that he's considered both like a traitor and a coward mm-hmm. or at the same time can be viewed as smart because he didn't die on the he chose to run away rather than die on the battlefield mm-hmm. but at the same time because he didn't he's viewed as a he can be viewed as a coward because he should have obviously you know stayed and fought because that's what he was obviously paid for um when he starts getting better he's able to provide help around around the garden the gardens and he's seen there you know Cutting branches down the trees and uh, and tending to the gardens and stuff. And I, I have to commend that Coppola didn't have him take his shirt off at all. I was like, I was just waiting when we see him doing the garden scenes. It's like, oh, he's going to totally do the diet coat thing. He's going to take his shirt off and get young girls flustered and stuff. But no, he actually 
keeps his uh, shirt on and he's just tending to the gardens and stuff and you think oh maybe he has this sort of purpose and you get the feeling that he's sees that you know if he can make himself seem that he has like a has his purpose that he can like be like the gardener or something that he be able to this would be his way out of the war um he can just sort of like hide out on the grounds and and earn his keep so to speak but then when we have the big sort of uh dinner sequence where he's there he's flirting with the girls and there and we obviously as i said we uh and he ends up uh in the bed of alicia which i as we said before it's it's uh very sort of complex because of alicia being played by elfani looking a lot younger than she's supposed to be uh so when i was watching this i was like oh my god is he a pedophile <laughs> the fact that he turns down these two older la- two mature ladies um um to go to go with this this young girl which obviously leads to him being thrown down the stairs and breaking a leg which then miss martha has to is forced to amputate and it's really once he realizes he's got his leg that he becomes a very mean-spirited sort of drunk and it's the real darkness starts to show for his mm-hmm. his character and you have to wonder had he not had his leg amputated would we have ever seen that darkness because the whole time that he's introduced, when he's as soon as he arrives at the girls' school, it's very much like the strain, the uh, mysterious stranger who comes into the quiet community and then starts causing trouble. And you're kind of waiting for that, that but it never seems to come until he obviously loses his leg. But again, this is at the decision of the of Miss Martha for him to have his leg amputated, uh, which he deems to be the best thing. But he obviously sees it as a way to be entrapped. Yeah. Which I, you know, I feel like a lot of his anger and a lot of his darkness comes from that desire that you know he was. It felt like he was kind of in control of the situation before, and then now he's trying to not be controlled by them. So he's trying to you know, kind of take the reins again. So he finds a way to kind of coax them into, you know, to not only being mean but also like for people who are still willing to be nice to him. To kind of coax them into helping him turn the situation around. You know, he gets a little manipulative, but at the same time, you know, it's... He really, like, the movie didn't paint him to be a really good character, right? He's not, like, a great person that you're going to stand behind and be like, Oh, he feels like a victim. Well, I guess you feel bad for him when he's screaming in pain. But then at the same time, for me, I was like, Well, you kind of weren't too great, you know? (laughs) You know, you you, you 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 try and toy with too many girls and, you know, that's what happens. You tried Accidents. to beat the house and the house won. That's <laughs> the, the problem. He's so like, he's playing, he's trying to play his odds. And he's so like, oh, I can like set up, set up like all these like engagements with all these girls. And then ultimately the house is like, no. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, like the, the deal is in the end, you realize that. I mean, in the end of all this, I feel like I'm jumping ahead, but in the end of all this, what it feels like is that when things get tough, the girls group together and, and you know, find a way to get rid of their threat. They do. And, and I just find it amazing because, you know, at the same time, it, it puts so much question into, you know, Edwina, like Kirsten Dunst's character. Because, you know, she goes through, I think, the biggest fluctuations in her character where she kind of goes through all those emotions of you know controlling herself and not trying to let loose and having those attractions to this man and then you know suddenly eventually giving in and then all of a sudden you know at the end when you know the way that you know they 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 end things with him she that she feels very like you know, she seems like she's like, okay, well, this distraction is not there anymore, so I'm just gonna go back to listening to Miss Martha. Certainly. So, the problem I had with her sort of character path was, mm. um, was the fact that we have this this scene of intense violence and aggression, yeah, and then she ends up she goes she has sex with McBurney in a scene which I wasn't sure whether it was her way to distract him and turn his attentions away from the other girls or whether she was just taking something finally being able to have seen the freedom to to take what she wanted from the situation i think in a certain in a certain way it was kind of like a win-win situation for the girls at least not for him but i mean like in a win-win situation where 
I think subconsciously they all were trying to protect themselves, but at the same time, she was getting what she wanted while she was able to distract him and trusted in the fact that Miss Martha would use this opportunity to find a way to, you know, kind of figure a way out of the situation that they were in. Because obviously he was being a threat to them now. He was trying to, you know, really be the man of the house. And and I would assume that since they've been the women of the house for so long, they weren't very happy about it. It's just really when we get to that final sort of dinner table sequence and Matt Bernie's talking about moving on that I got the feeling that she would be going with him because she's very much sat next to him and it feels very much that they've formed a, a sort of more romantic partnership between them. And the fact that he, when he's removed from, from the picture, that her only sort of choice then is to either leave the school or to fall in line. And it, as you said before, is that when the situation goes dark, the girls revert back to the status quo, which is obviously to fall on, in line under the sort of guidance of Miss Martha and have where she regains her sort of position as the queen bee of this this hive and everyone else falls in line with her and it's sort of like that whatever sort of like spell that McBurney had over these girls is suddenly sort of broken as soon as we have that sort of moment of violence and 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 aggression as we said where he's sort of showing more of his true colors but at the same time it's also hard to say is this his true self or is it the fact that he's just woke up to find he's missing a leg um and rather understandably upset about that yeah well obviously he's upset about it and and that definitely triggers a lot of the darkness but i think that deep down you know he he was controlling a lot of this side of him because you know there's those little 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 moments i don't know if you caught them but there are little moments in the beginning of the film where you really feel like He's doing this so that he can kind of charm his way to stay. Like there's like little moments where, you know, uh, Miss Martha does something and then and then she turns around and then he has this like little kind of like evil laugh kind of thing. I had I, I like an evil chuckle kind of thing. And and it was those little moments I kind of like doubted his personality a little. I was thinking about whether like he actually wasn't, you know, such a great guy. I mean, obviously he's not because... You know, he's fighting for, you know, money. <laughs> so, uh, but I mean, at the end, it's kind of like maybe they had a bond and maybe he did want to change. But at the end, like the girls, I think the 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 whole idea of using a woman's perspective here is that it's kind of like if a man is bad to you, you should go. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like a lot of the, the, the abuse thing in life where... If you're getting abused by someone, which is which is what he was doing to these girls, yeah, pretty much, you know, in you know when his personality got really dark, like he was, you know, when Alicia tried to, you know, be nice to him, he was like, he 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 was trying to, you know, just trying to, you know, coax her to do things, but by being very violent, by pulling her hair, right, and you know, even uh, even you know. Um, Amy, who who was the one who found him, who treated him like a friend and didn't have anything to do directly with the situation, he turned around and, you know, he, he threw her turtle out, you know? And, and there's all these things that he does that, you know, you can't really blame them for, at the end, to see this person being a threat to the normalcy they had around them to kind of, like, create war inside their own residence so what they did was really out of self-defense because you know you can only assume that the women especially miss martha acted out of the good of you know saving his life so it's a different point of view is that she thinks he's saving she's saving his life by amputating his leg whereas he sees it as you know as he says a house of mad women trying to control him kind of thing right i think uh, he, yes, and at the same time, when he's obviously loses, like he's really at the mercy of of these women. I mean, he doesn't know if he's going to be turned in to the the Confederates, and could mm-hmm. we see them coming to the house and they ask if they've if uh, they've seen any soldiers? And obviously, the Kim's character covers her and say that you know they've not seen anyone. It's just her and the girls are at the the house. 
So there's obviously this fear from his part that he's obviously going to then be at their mercy and that if he doesn't fall in line, he's going to get turned over uh, to to either force, really. So I love the fact that when they when when these girls obviously sort of bond together they become this much more powerful force and the fact they're mm-hmm. able to put into plan this sort of final game game which adds a, a fun little bit of tension as we get into the final dinner party sequence mm-hmm. where it looks like another character may get uh get bumped off as so become like sort of collateral damage in this situation but the final sort of shot of life returning to normality at the school i thought almost had like a almost horror sort of edge to it <laughs> almost like the sort of best best sort of horror films really when you look at how life just can just these girls have removed um what was causing their issue within their community and now life can return back to normal and the fact that it's sort of very symbolized by the fact that uh he's sort of cast outside the gates yeah. So he's removed completely from this world. It's not so much enough just to um, sew him into the into the sack. He has to be like completely removed from the ground so that his presence can no longer sort of t- taint their world. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, and and it's very it's very nice because you know, like at the same time, like she also like Coppola also does that whole like you know what I really love about her that whole ending and finishing moment, right? So you have that opening scene where you have that same shot coming in where they're carrying him in to the house. And that same shot of carrying him out is that same angle of camera. At least I think it is. Yeah. As it looks very similar. And and there's just it's just so amazing that every single time we watch one of her movies, it's it's like, you know, just a snippet of that life. You know, that moment where this person came into their lives and that chapter is done, you know? And and things have gone back to normal. She does live in a very sort of. Her stories have got very much uh, all wrapped up. There's not. She doesn't uh, seem like the sort of director who's creating things for sequels. Certainly. Yeah. They're all very yeah. enclosed uh, in stories. But at the same time, I think there there's you know so much to love about that kind kind of movie because you know in a world where everybody wants to milk every single franchise in the freaking world it's just (laughs) you know it's it's really nice to see that there's someone who's making stories just to tell stories and just to tell like different stories but you know trying to use you know not only you know from a woman's perspective in many ways but also just you know telling stories in in kind of like a, a different you know, in just kind of like a, a microscope, right? Just like in that little moment of someone life, someone's life. Obviously, I'm like a freaking indie snob now, I think. So I'm a, I'm really appreciative of people who do things like that because that's, you know, a, a great part of indie movies is, is making movies like that who are smaller scopes but, you know, have a lot more depth. And, you know, just the fact that Coppola is able to change, you know, to make this adaptation and really, like, be able to use those hour and a half that she has and create these characters that still show a lot of depth but you know have a kind of like you know fluctuation and as well throughout and development throughout their character and it, it's it's really nice i i you know i think the beguile did is, is done really well when it comes to the film's historical context obviously this is set during the civil war um now, in the original novel, there is a uh, black slave character called uh, Maddie, who is uh, sorry, Matty, who is uh, actually removed from the film completely. And this did raise sort of controversy with uh, people familiar with the property to say that Coppola was attempting to whitewash um, history by removing this character. And she actually responded by the fact that she felt that the film she was making she wasn't trying to bring in sort of like questions of like race and slavery and also really objected to how the character was written in the 1966 novel where she highlighted the fact that the character doesn't speak proper english her voice is not even grammatically transcribed uh going on to say i did not want to put 
perpetuate an objectionable stereotype where facts and history supported my choice of setting the story of these white women in complete isolation after the slaves escaped. Moreover, I felt to, to treat slavery as a side plot would be insulting. She's also cited the fact that she did not want young girls sort of like uh, sort of watching her films and you know thinking that that this is the only role sort of roles that african-american girls can sort of play um and i think it works well the fact that she removes um the character from the plot i mean it's not an essential character to the film and certainly keeps the focus really tight on what the main sort of plot here is in the fact that it's you know it's about the girls and the effect that uh that this soldier uh has uh, on their lives really and i think i certainly didn't feel that uh the film lost anything by removing sort of elements of slavery and understandably the civil war was obviously slavery was a key part of uh of that conflict but by not having it featured here i didn't think we're certainly losing anything we certainly get the elements of war from like the glimpse of the soldiers and the noise in the background so the war is always there but it's not essential to the story being told here yeah but that's the thing is you know the war was the backdrop of the story. It wasn't the main focus. The main focus was about, you know, jealousy and betrayal and the tension between, you know, the girls and having this, you know, mysterious stranger enter their lives. That was the main story behind it. it I don't think, you know, I, like, obviously, I don't know the source material. So I don't know how key that character was. But I think that keeping it the way it was, like, you know, kept the focus to what she wanted to portray. Yeah, I mean, it, it's such a, when you view, like, look at sort of slavery and racism, it's not something that you can sort of, like, brush over lightly. You've got to really sort of give it time to, and mm -hmm. the focus, it, it deserves to highlight such issues. So by removing it, you're in many ways removing the distraction it would cause, because it's only going to add to your runtime. And certainly with the film at a brief hour and 30 minutes, which it's funny to say now... But when you uh, compare it to everything else, which is like three hours plus runtime, um, the fact that we have an hour and a half film that keeps everything so tight and uh, at the same time has a feeling of looseness to it, it's, uh, it's a real sort of credit to Coppola's sort of timekeeping as a director, really. For reviewing, um, if you do like The Begard, where do you sort of go next? Is there anything that you sort of want to compare it to? Well, I, I already mentioned a few of mine, so obviously um, I would pair it if you wanted to stay on Coppola, you would go to Virgin Suicide, which is very comparable, especially with a lot of the scenes. Um, you know, like the dinner scene with all the girls giggling. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, whoa, Virgin Suicide has the exact scene. Um, That's good for And we even have Kirsten Dunst. <laughs> and then um, if you want to go kind of like that same era-ish, I don't know, uh, and with Nicole Kidman and kind of more horror, I would say The Others would be a really good choice to go. Um, you know, this one didn't quite hit the horror, but if you wanted to end it off with an actual horror, it would be The Others. Um, and, you know, uh, at the same time, if you wanted to watch, you know, like girls, um, you know, a group of girls and sisters kind of thing, um, I would say Pride and Prejudice is also very close to a plot like this. Um, but, uh, as we were recording, I actually thought of something. And if you talked about a mysterious stranger who starts out really nice and gets really dark, I thought of a movie and that would be The Guest, which, you know, Dan Stevens <laughs> is really incredible in. And the movie itself is really incredible. So if you haven't seen that movie, that movie is really great. <sighs> yeah, I think that's going to be an after hours pick at some point. Because I really want to go to look a bit deeper. But uh, no, the guest, I remember when that came out. And it became one of those films where, especially over like a German Sky for Midnight Cinema, where it seemed like everyone was talking about this this film. It like came out of nowhere. And then suddenly like all everyone wanted to talk about was just the guest. So I really love it when, a, when you have like this film that comes out of nowhere and suddenly becomes like the hottest thing that everyone wants to talk about. Um yeah, some of it, another one I would throw into that same category would be Needful Things, uh, which is based on Stephen King book of the same name, where a mysterious shopkeeper sets up a, a shop in a, a small, quiet town, offering objects of desire to the local residents in exchange for, as he calls them, tricks. 
ultimately causing chaos and confusion in the town as these tricks all suddenly start to cross over with one another. Um, it's a really great uh, Stephen King adaptation and often one that's uh, kind of forgotten rather unfairly, especially as it features a really great central performance by Max von Sidro. Um, and one definitely worth checking out. Um, similar to The Beguiled, if you like this, I would also check out Black Narcissist from 1947, uh, which is about a group of Anglican nuns um, in the Himalayan mountains and the chaos that uh, their world is thrown into when a government worker, um, Mr. Dean, shows up at the convent, uh, stirring feelings within certain members of the conventcy. Um on the horror track as well, uh, Nicole Kidman movie I'd really recommend checking out would be Stoker, uh, which mm, is Park Chan Wook's yeah. English debut, I think. Oh yeah, Kimmon, that, that one, that one is amazing. <laughs> yeah, Kimmon's performance here is very similar to the one we see her playing Stoker, and all the time watching it, I was like just constantly like thrown back to her performance there, and it just reminds me that she's got such versatility as an actress, and especially now as she. Actually, at this sort of state, later stage of her career, she's sort of like really sort of pushing herself out more and taking all the a lot more sort of interesting and more challenging roles, which is really interesting to see. Yeah, those are going to be the the one the, the ones I would recommend going with if uh, you enjoy this. I mean, obviously you can go back and watch the uh, Don Seagal version as well, which is uh it's pretty good, and obviously see the film from a male perspective. Um, as well as seeing a young rugged Clint Eastwood, if that does anything for you, so. Uh, but yeah, that must be our further watching. Um, obviously we're at the end of season three now, and what a delight it has obviously been. And as with every season, we like to look back and really highlight uh, for ourselves really what's been sort of the best and what's been the worst and what's really been the hidden gem of this filmography. We've obviously been reevaluating over the course of the season. So, Kim, I mean starting with the best film what did you enjoy the most in the filmography this season i'm kind of torn between two and i haven't okay. quite decided yet so how about you go first <laughs> um for myself i would say lost in translation which i think it may seem as a bit of an obvious pick but no matter how many times i've seen this film it's just i will constantly like notice details or i just find a different scene that i really enjoy within it and certainly the chemistry between um bill murray's character and uh scarlett johansson's character is just so natural and it's got such flow the fact that she the couple gives them a chance to like improv and when you're with someone like bill murray who's just so natural if you give him sort of any sort of free reign to 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 just run with material he would certainly uh just take it and just produce wonderful things which obviously did here and it really gave us the start of him perfecting his less is more uh technique that we would obviously see him replicate again when we look at jim jamus's broken flowers and i did just everything about that uh that film is just just a delight uh from start to finish hmm. so well we're kind of at the same spot because loss in translation was ranked the top movie for me for pretty much the entire season right okay and then the beguiled came around and then i was like really captured by the movie and i like both of them for different reasons um so i haven't quite decided which i like but uh, <laughs> i'm gonna go with the beguiled just to be different <laughs> that's right i have a feel i have a feeling that our worst and hidden gem might be uh very similar okay <laughs> there's not that much filmography to choose from so um yeah no but i mean you know what I really liked about The Beguiled? And, I mean, we just had a long discussion about it, so I'm not going to dive too deep. But, you know, I really like the complexities in the character. I really like how the film was shot. I really like the setting. And, you know, that there's a lot of careful details here that are, are done really nice. And I think one of the things I liked the most was, you know, The Beguiled feels like one of those movies in her filmography where I feel genuinely, like captivated by watching like i felt thrilled to watch because yeah. it's a thriller so i felt really thrilled and got that whole thriller element in there um obviously you know i you know adding on to you know loss in translation that movie is not the same it's not comparable because it's not the same thing it's just from the same director so 
You know, Lost in Translation also has all those great points that you talked about. You know, Bill Murray, Scarlett Johansson, you know, they're 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 great and just you know that chemistry and that friendship they have is is something that you know that's that's one of the reasons why i I, you know lost in translation in the second viewing did so much for me but i think the beguiled wins just because it was a first viewing and i still liked it a lot oh definitely this is the first viewing for myself and it's weird the fact that it came out in 2017 and nobody ever talks about the beguiled I feel like it did when it first came out. I feel like a lot of people talked about it, and then something else came out, and then that got, like, got kind of, like, you know, took over, right? I just never remember hearing or seeing anything about about this film. I remember. I remembered seeing it, and I remember Nicole Kidman being talked about in it, and then that was about it. I didn't remember anything else from it, so I don't know. Because, I I mean, I went into it thinking, oh, my God, this is, like, uh, this this film she's made this absolute clunker of a, a film uh yeah. so i went in like completely blind not not really knowing anything about it and just had an absolute mm. blast with it and then you go on like letterbox and you suddenly see everyone's like you know five four star ratings it's like wow this is like this amazing film <laughs> and much like uh the recent remake of murder on the orient express it's all like why did i not go around to watching this earlier this is fantastic so I can I totally uh, see why you would have it in that top spot category. I mean, it came very close to myself, but I felt at the same time I wanted to watch it a couple more times before I sort of like could fully commit to it being that number one. But um, mm. yeah, I could definitely see why you would rank this so highly. Mm. So where are we going next? Hidden gem or worse? I think we do. Let's go for hidden gem. Let's mix. Okay. Up so slightly. what's your hidden gem? <laughs> Hidden gem for myself, and this might come as a little bit of a surprise for you. I'm going to say Virgin Suicides. Oh, why would that be a hidden gem? Everybody knows about it. For myself, it's the fact that I dismiss it uh, for like the longest time because it didn't connect. I didn't like the ending, and I didn't like so many elements with it. And I, mm. while it's certainly not a perfect film, watching it again for this this time around, there's so many elements of the film. Um, Certainly, like with James Wood's performance, and like just the the performance from the two the parent rental characters yeah. of the film, and yes, it's not a perfect film, but there's so many scenes within that film when you look at it a lot more closely, they're just so charming or interesting, such as like when we've got the epilogue sequence and they're talking about um, the fact that the the swamp is algae over producing all this noxious gas, and we've cut to this sort of like um graduation party where like the guests are in tuxedos and and gowns and wearing gas masks and it's sort of like wow how did i forget that scene or even more simpler scenes where such as when they're playing records over the phone to the girls those sort of scenes really sort of charmed me and it just like you could see like a director coming into her own even at this sort of early stage just how she was experimenting with how shots were done and Yes, it's still got a very flawed film and very. Uh, there's certainly scenes where the structure, I think, towards the final quarter, I think it doesn't quite hold up, and there are other issues. But certainly, in terms of like uh, examining it, just like a filmography sort of stance, I think it's it's. Uh, that's why I chose it as my sort of gem. I think it's one that's definitely worth a, a reevaluation if you've not looked at it in a while. Yes. Yeah, so for yourself, what would you say is the hidden gem then? Uh, well, obviously, you know, Virgin Suicides is a really great choice. I think, I think mostly because, you know, I, I agreed the same thing with you that, you know, when I went to watch back, there was a lot of really great things. But I think for me, the hidden gem had to be somewhere, mostly because it's never talked about. Yeah, no, so somewhere is, is really, is really like a hidden gem, mostly because it's, you know, it's so, it's, you know, no one talks about it. And it's that um, one film in her filmography where she takes kind of a male perspective. Um and at the same time, I really like, you know, obviously I, I've mentioned when we were recording for somewhere that um, I have a very special um, love for uh, movies that portray father and daughter relationships. And I think that in this one, it's done really well in the sense that, you know, the character develops really well and Stephen Dorff does a fantastic job. Um, you know, Elle Fanning is really great as the daughter. Um, so... There's a lot to love about somewhere, and I think it gets overlooked a lot. 
Yeah, I think it gets overlooked a lot because of the pacing for it. The fact that yeah. a lot of people don't get the fact that she wants to like focus on certain shots for a long time to show the banality of of his existence. Yeah. Really, the fact that um, she she like focuses on the like the opening shot of like him driving the Ferrari around the track or when he's being fit for the prosthetic. Um, exactly. Just those long in shots that I think meant it doesn't sort of sit with a lot of people, and certainly for like. I would say about the first 40 minutes of that film it is a little bit of a, a slow burn and I think that's it what is. Though, that's what stopped me from sort of ha- having it as that hidden gem because um, mm-hmm. I was like looking at it, it was like well which of these films do I f- feel that I'm it's sort of like an appreciation and I want to go back and study more and that's why I obviously went with more with the Virgin Suicides because I just found there was more to sort of like dive into um, and examining like just the shots and the structure and obviously with somewhere it's um, a lot more on the screen it's a lot more minimalistic but yeah there's certainly mm. those the father-daughter scenes and just the evolution of the relationship is just so charming to watch especially when you look at the autobiographical details she put in for like expenses of growing up on her own father's um, sets and like when they're having je- they're eating like gelato in the bed and they go to like the awards ceremony. like the shots the scenes in Italy in particular are just so much fun so yeah so uh, yeah so I mean we're going to the worst which I think we're probably going to both have the same thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think that we do I think it's I think anyone who's listened to obviously the season from start to finish we will, I'm guessing that we're both going for Marie Antoinette here so yeah, we're saying Marion Internet is our one to burn of this filmography. <laughs> and actually, I have to say that while we're obviously dismissing it as the worst filmography, even as the worst film, it's still a film worth checking out. Um, certainly the first half of Marion Internet I really enjoy. It's only once we get into the second half and really the the life of the married uh, Marie Antoinette and her her reign as queen that the film sort of slows down and sort of uh, grinds to a halt and certainly Ver- the Vernover it says in Mariko was nice enough to give us his own in-depth evaluation of of the film as well which I think as I said I, mean, I was surprised that he named it as, as his favourite uh, film of the filmography when you consider the films that she's obviously made but uh yeah it's as i said it's not it's the one that if we're like looking at films to return to it's the one that i'm like no i'm not that sort of fussed to uh, return to it, even though that first half is is fun and there's a lot to enjoy there i mean for sure i like you know it, it's hard i guess you know for us we knew right away what was the worst movie that in in her filmography and but yet, it, you know, Marie Antoinette is also the most colorful movie in, in her in her filmography, which makes it, you know, kind of, it, it still has a lot of fun elements to it. And, you know, there's there's obviously, like, that sort of humor to it that really works. Um, but, you know, in the end, it, it's just, you know, if we were to talk about pacing issues or, or even, like, um, just... Just how I guess how it ends and how the the movie flows, um, you know, there are some there's like really nice like contemporary music clashing with that classic thing, that period drama thing, which gives it that uniqueness. But yet, you know, it just feels like something's missing from it all the time, and it's just not really at par to you know the rest of her filmography. I think that's that. That's what that's what we're really saying is that there, there's some there's a lot to appreciate here, but you know it's just a little bit away from you know everyone else, everything else in her filmography. Yeah, it would be interesting as well if we if we had included a very merry Christmas in in this filmography, whether Marionette would have still been at the bottom of the pile. I mean, certainly for myself, I would say that say that it was even though i know there was quite a few people who were obviously disappointed with uh, a very merry christmas i think it more than likely expecting more a laugh a minute um sort of performance from bill murray rather than the more subtle and sedate and often uh how should we say um interpretive uh, performance that we did get from him so but uh, okay. I, I mean, I liked I liked the very merry Christmas. I thought it was it is it was fun to have on when you're in that post turkey haze. 
<laughs> well, I'll I'll th I'll definitely consider it for this year's uh this year's uh Christmas marathon. Then. If if you want something for when you've get like you got your food coma on, then it, it's quite gentle and fun to watch in the background. It's if you're watching it as like your uh your kickstart movie, you're like, "Ooh, it's Christmas." <laughs> uh you're going to be a little disappointed cuz it's it's not got the right tone or pitch to it, so um, unlike that Kurt Russell Christmas movie, which was great last year, so <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously Sylvia Crowman, she's at the moment she's currently filming On the Rocks, uh, another father daughter relationship movie. Um, Yay. it's going to see a reuniting with Bill Murray, um, who the film itself from the premise that we have here it's going to follow a young mother who reconnects with a larger than life playboy father on an adventure through New York uh, the film being noted as the first collaboration between Apple and A24 uh, A24 much like Bloom uh, Bloomhouse being the studio at the moment they're obviously if you're not familiar with with A24 they produce a lot of sort of the more arty and interesting independent films such as Ex Machina and The Lobster and Spring Breakers and uh, mm. they also are responsible for giving us The Witch or The Witch depending on how you read that Witch, yeah. I'm never sure because it looks like two V's so it's... it's supposed to be <clears throat> it's supposed to be two V's okay it is supposed to be two V's but it, it people read it as The Witch yeah um so that will be her first collaboration with uh, with this new partnership as well. So it'd be interesting to obviously see how that uh, how that goes. Because at the moment we're not seeing anything at all from it. At the moment, it's really frustrating. And Coppola herself, being as publicity shy as, as she is, I mean, she's got this delightful awkwardness to her interviews whenever you see her trying to do promotion work. Uh, so she's not exactly one to sort of like put herself out there and go we're making this movie and it's going to have this scene so um i'm really sort of interested to see how that that obviously goes so yeah well we'll, we'll eventually figure out some way because all the directors we're working on right now that we've talked about so far all have stuff coming out in 2020 or something so we'll have to figure out some way to like fill in those gaps of our directors that we worked in or something we'll do a redux season or something yeah we'll do a redux season to catch up on everybody's work that we've done and by by you know by maybe the eighth season we will have eight episodes to go so cool yeah. um well that uh as i said this brings us the end of a uh, another season so thank you everyone for listening as always if you want to uh, check out our full archive for not only this season but our previous seasons on Paul W. Sanson and Guillermo del Toro you can find out at moviesandteapodcast.wordpress.com you can also find us on social media we're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram uh, where we post uh, interesting bits and pieces as well as obviously announcements for the episode and if you haven't done already please do hit the like and subscribe buttons and leave us a review as it all helps raise the profile of the show and uh, helps us get more exposure out there um but for our next episode we're obviously into the after hours portion of our block um so where are we going next because obviously next week is going to be shark week three yeah shark week three we're going for something um well, what did we do before? Oh, yeah, no, no. we're going, we're go we're going fairly, fairly, fairly modern. We're jumping back, you know, from deep blue sea. We've we've moved forward again, um, back to something a little bit more recent, and um, that is the Shallows from 2016, featuring the beautiful and very lovely Blake Lively. Yep. Um... The Shallows obviously being most noteworthy for being a good shark movie um, alongside The Meg, which obviously kick-started our whole uh, Shark Week phenomena here on the show. So um, we also will have have another couple of uh, After Hours episodes where both myself and Kim are going to be picking uh, films films uh, to discuss as well. So uh, make sure you uh, definitely stay tuned and uh, join us for that as uh, next time we we uh, will be discussing the shells. Um, also, keep an eye out on the Lambcast as uh, Kim has been made his, another appearance on there. Yeah. So uh, you can hear Kim talk about it, Chapter Two, and uh, representing the brand. So, well done. Yeah, 
rep- representing the ladies as well, since I'm the only girl on that show. <laughs> <laughs> um, but again, thank you as always for listening. Thank you to Kim, and uh, we'll be back next time to talk about the showers.